Good morning and happy new year. My name is Jessica Hudden. I'm the founder of the Bible Study Tutor and the host of the Bible Study Tutor podcast. Today is day one of our one year Bible study challenge called 24 seven with the Bible Study Tutor. And we are going to begin our study with Matthew chapters one and two. But before I dive into an expositional breakdown of those chapters, I want to remind you to go look at the New Testament playlist. I believe it's called Introduction to the New Testament, and what you'll find there is that I've given you a high-level summary of every book of the New Testament. I encourage you to look at that playlist because we are going to be studying the New Testament books of the Bible first, but more importantly, we are going to be wrapping up the New Testament by May. I know that the year has just begun, but as you can see, we're already in 2024 and time is flying, so waste no time catching up on the introductory videos because those will help you understand everything that I'm going to break down going forward in the next year. But in this video, since we're just now starting our study of Matthew, I want to get you thinking about how the original audience may have interpreted his message. So I'm going to give you an introduction to that, and then we're just going to dive into Matthew 1 and 2. Matthew's original audience, primarily composed of Jewish Christians, would likely have responded to his gospel with a profound sense of anticipation and recognition of historical significance. The period preceding the Gospel of Matthew is often referred to as the 400 years of silence or the intertestamental period during which there were no prophetic messages recorded in the Old Testament. Here are several ways Matthew's audience might have responded to his message. The first thing they would have been mindful of is fulfillment of messianic expectations. Having experienced centuries without a prophet, Matthew's audience familiar with Old Testament prophecies would likely have recognized the Gospel as the fulfillment of messianic expectations. The genealogy, the announcement of Jesus as the Messiah, and connections to Davidic promises would have resonated strongly with their longing for a coming Redeemer. Historical consciousness. Jewish Christians keenly aware of the historical and religious heritage would have appreciated the historical precision and genealogical details presented by Matthew. The structured genealogy highlighting pivotal figures in Israel's history would have reinforced their understanding of Jesus within the broader context of God's covenantal plan. And then connection to Old Testament themes. The Gospel of Matthew is rich with Old Testament allusions and connections, and this would have deeply resonated with first century Jewish Christians. The references to Abraham, David, and the fulfillment of various prophecies would have strengthened their conviction that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah predicted in their sacred scriptures. Matthew's Gospel would have been received as a testament to God's faithfulness and the continuity of his plan. The apparent silence in the prophetic tradition for over four centuries would find their resolution in the arrival of Jesus, demonstrating that God had not forgotten his promises, but had, in fact, been working out his redemptive plan in the fullness of time. Matthew's gospel would have also given them a sense of renewed spiritual hope. The announcement of Jesus as the Messiah would have reignited a sense of spiritual hope among Matthew's audience. This anticipation built over the centuries would find its climax in the person of Jesus, offering them a renewed sense of purpose and expectation for the future. However, there would have also been some challenges to traditional expectations. While many would have embraced Matthew's gospel with enthusiasm, others might have faced some challenges reconciling the traditional expectations of a triumphant political messiah with the humble and spiritual nature of Jesus' ministry. The gospel's presentation of Jesus as a suffering servant and spiritual deliverer might have required a paradigm shift for some in the audience. In summary, Matthew's original audience likely responded to the gospel with a mix of excitement, recognition, and deep theological reflection. The arrival of Jesus would have been seen as the culmination of a long period of waiting, fulfilling prophecies, and ushering a new era of God's redemptive work. So with that background, and with you having gone to review the New Testament introductions, we're going to begin our exposition of Matthew 1 and 2. So Matthew begins with a powerful declaration that his primarily Jewish Christian audience would have understood. In the introductory sentence, Matthew informs his readers that the promised Messiah, whose kingdom would reign eternally and through whom all nations of the world would be, be blessed, had come to save the lost. 
After centuries of prophetic silence, Matthew announced that a new beginning had dawned through the miraculous conception of Jesus, who was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. His introduction explains who Jesus Christ is, where he came from, and the implications of his arrival. The first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew is a significant portion of the four-chapter prologue that is Matthew 1, 1 to 4, 11, as it introduces key theological themes by the strategic usage of names, genealogical framework, and careful summation of Jesus' birth and, Jesus, and Joseph's role in Jesus' life. At its core, Matthew 1 contributes significantly to the overarching narrative of the Gospel, presenting Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and the long-awaited Messiah who had come as God incarnate to save his people from their sins. Essentially, Matthew's introduction serves as a theological prelude that lays the foundation for the profound narrative that unfolds in 28 chapters. Matthew 1, 1-17 Genealogy as Theological Foundation In the opening verses, Matthew meticulously traces the genealogy of Jesus, connecting him to key figures in Israel's history. This genealogical record is not a mere list of names, but a deliberate proclamation of Jesus as the culmination of God's promises to Abraham and David. By anchoring Jesus in this historical and royal lineage, Matthew establishes his messianic identity and positions him as the long-awaited fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. The genealogy has unique features that contribute to its significance. First, the genealogy is arranged in descending order as it begins with Abraham and ends with Jesus. In addition, the author traces Jesus' genealogy in three groups of 14 generations. The first group is headlined by Abraham, the second generation emphasizes King David, and the third group emphasizes Jesus, who was called Christ. Each generation represents a different stage of Israel's saga. It begins with Abraham, climaxes with David in the pre-exilic period, and is fulfilled in Jesus in the post-exilic period. Though the, the saga spans millennia and undoubtedly caused the Israelites to experience some angst, God demonstrated his faithfulness through every period of their story. The generations in Matthew's genealogy are marked by covenants that would be fulfilled in Christ, the Davidic ruler who would save Israel from their sins. Through this carefully formulated genealogy, Matthew demonstrated that Jesus is both the ethnic, that is, Jewish descendant of Abraham, and the one through whom God promised he would bless all nations. See Genesis 12.3. And he is also the son of David, the one whose kingdom would reign forever. See 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. Through this genealogy, Matthew revealed that Jesus was the legal heir to the throne and the promised Messiah for whom they had eagerly waited many generations. Embedded within the genealogy are instances of divine intervention and providence, underscoring a theological theme of God's sovereignty over human history. Noteworthy figures such as Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, women with unconventional or what some may refer to as scandalous stories, accentuate God's redemptive plan, emphasizing his ability to work through imperfect human situations. For example, after Judah failed to fulfill his leverage responsibility to give his remaining son to Tamar so that she could bear a son, Tamar dis disguised herself as a prostitute, tricked Judah to have sex with her, and got pregnant with his son, thereby ensuring her security and support through the preservation of her late husband's name and estate. For more information on that, read Genesis 38. And then Rahab was a prostitute who helped the Israelite spies by hiding them in her home in Jericho. It was a faith-filled act of bravery that ultimately contributed to the success of the Israelites' conquest of the city. For more information on that, read Joshua 2. Ruth was a Moabite woman that married a Hebrew that moved with his family to Moab. When he, his brother, and father died, story is rough, Ruth remained with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and followed her to their hometown, Bethlehem, making a vow to be loyal to her and worship her god, Yahweh. Through providence, Ruth gleaned in the fields belonging to Boaz, who was a wealthy relative of Naomi's deceased husband. Eventually, per the ancient Hebrew custom, Boaz became a kinsman redeemer, marrying Ruth to preserve the family lineage and heritage. Ruth and Boaz's union resulted in the birth of Obed, who later became the grandfather of King David. Bathsheba, described in the genealogy as Uriah's wife, was seduced by King David. 
Upon learning of Bathsheba's pregnancy and attempting to conceal his transgressions, David arranged for Uriah to be placed in the front lines of battle where he was deliberately left exposed and subsequently killed. After Uriah's death, David took Bathsheba as his wife. The prophet Nathan confronted David about his actions, leading to David's repentance. Bathsheba's first son with David died. And despite the tragic circumstances of Bathsheba's initial involvement with David, she later became the mother of Solomon, who would succeed David as king. So for information on that, see 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And then finally, Mary, a virgin who was betrothed to Joseph, conceived a child. Naturally, knowing just as well then as now how babies are made, Joseph assumed that Mary had been involved in an illicit affair and resolved to divorce her. However, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream to inform him that nothing illicit had occurred, but that the child which was conceived in Mary was from the Holy Spirit. She was specially chosen by God to bear Jesus, God incarnate, who would save the world, including her, from their sins. In addition, Matthew's inclusion of these women also provides clues into the diverse people that God welcomes into his kingdom family, as they are not only representative of people with less than ideal backgrounds and experiences, but diverse ethnic groups. Tamar was identified as Aramean in Jubilees 41.1. Rahab is identified as a Canaanite, see Joshua 2.1-14. Ruth is a Moabite, who is mentioned in Ruth 1.4, and Bathsheba indirectly is referred to as a foreigner due to her connection to Uriah, who is a Hittite. See 2 Samuel 11.3. Collectively, these women exemplify this broader scope of Jesus' association with individuals from diverse backgrounds. Mary, however, was Jewish. Now regarding the second passage, Matthew 1.18-25, the virgin birth, Matthew continues the narrative by summarizing the circumstances surrounding Jesus' conception. Now notice the particular care Matthew uses to describe Joseph's role in Jesus' life. In 1.16, Matthew describes just Joseph thusly, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. The English Standard Version of 1, 18-25 continues as such. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. When studying the Bible, it is imperative to pay attention to reference. A reference or reference refers to the specific person, thing, or idea to which a word is referring. So in Matthew 1.16, the reference are obvious. Joseph is described as the husband of Mary, whom refers to Mary, which clarifies the circumstances surrounding Jesus' conception. Joseph had nothing to do with it, hence his concern in the preceding verses. Then when we get to 1.18, Matthew specifies the circumstances surrounding Jesus' conception. The child, Jesus, was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. Further, to ensure that no one is confused about who Jesus is, how he got here, and the implications of his arrival, Matthew informs the readers of the following. 1. The conception was a fulfillment of prophecy divinely ordained by God centuries prior. So see Isaiah 7.14. Matthew unveils the miraculous conception of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, highlighting the divine nature of his origin. The virgin birth foretold by Isaiah sets Jesus apart as unique and establishes his divine sonship. Two, Jesus was God in the flesh. 
he was called or referred to as Emmanuel to demonstrate that God himself had come to the earth to dwell among his people. Thayer's Greek lexicon, as found on the Blue Letter Bible website, describes Emmanuel as follows. Emmanuel, God with us, is equivalent to Savior, a name given to Christ by Matthew. Matthew 1.23, after Isaiah 7.14. According to Orthodox interpretation of the name, denotes the same as theanthropos, and has reference to the personal union of the human nature and divine in Christ. In other words, theos, meaning God, and anthropos, meaning man or human, is often used in theological context to refer to the God-man or the divine human. In particular, theanthropos is associated with the incarnation, a word that describes Jesus as fully God and fully human. It encapsulates the idea that Jesus, as the Son of God, took on human nature while retaining his divine nature. This theological concept is central to understanding our Christian faith of Jesus, who is the mediator between God and man. Jesus was born to save people from their sins. That's the third point Matthew is making. His name, Jesus, is the Greek counterpart of the Hebrew name. So in Greek, Jesus is Jesus, and in Hebrew, it's Yeshua. So in case you're wondering, when people be trying to sound beat, they not. They just saying Hebrew. So like I said, Jesus is the Greek counterpart of the Hebrew name Joshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus' name reveals his purpose. He, God in the flesh, was born to save people from their sins. He was born to liberate us from the bondage of sin and death and save us from the wrath of God. Joseph assumed the earthly fatherly role of Jesus, much like an adoptive father. This is the fourth point Matthew is making in this narrative. By naming the child Jesus as instructed by the angel, Joseph assumed parental stewardship of Jesus. Looking again to Matthew 1.16 in reference to Joseph, the author emphasized Jesus' legal descent. Stein and Newman explained, According to Jewish teaching, if a man acknowledged a son as his own, then he was considered that man's son without any further question. Matthew can thus show that Jesus was a descendant of David through Joseph and at the same time emphasized the unique aspect of Jesus' birth through the Virgin Mary. Basically, Joseph's inclusion in the Matthaean genealogy is a key element in establishing Jesus' messianic credentials and royal lineage. It underscores Jesus' legal connection to the house of David while recognizing the unique circumstances of his virgin birth through Mary. Now, speaking of Joseph, Matthew's account emphasizes Joseph's perspective, whereas Luke's account focuses on Mary's perspective, which is likely because of the reasons that we've just explored, that is, the royal lineage and the legal aspect of it. So Joseph's role in Matthew 1 is significant for several reasons. Let's talk about some of those reasons that Joseph's role is significant in Matthew 1. The first is his connection to Davidic lineage and fulfillment of messianic prophecy. As discussed, Joseph's inclusion in the genealogy establishes a legal and familial connection between Jesus and the house of David. This connection is crucial because numerous Old Testament prophecies predicted that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. By tracing Jesus' ancestry through Joseph, Matthew emphasizes Jesus' rightful claim to the title of Messiah and the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. The other part is Joseph's demonstration of righteous character. Joseph's reaction to Mary's pregnancy, as portrayed in Matthew 1, 19-25, demonstrates his righteous character. Initially planning to divorce Mary quietly when he learned of her pregnancy, Joseph shows compassion and obedience to God's directive when the angel intervenes in a dream. Acceptance of Jesus through adoption. While Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, his acceptance of Mary and Jesus plays a vital role in Matthew's narrative. Joseph's decision to proceed with taking Mary as his wife and raising Jesus as his own child demonstrates a remarkable act of obedience. Moreover, even though little is known about Joseph, each narrative account that mentions him reveals that he was a righteous and compassionate man, willfully obedient to God, a protector, and an exemplary father and husband. The other thing that Matthew emphasizes in chapter 1 is Emmanuel, God with us. 
The chapter concludes with a powerful declaration of Jesus' deity. He is called Emmanuel, which Matthew explains is God with us. So in mentioning this, Matthew draws our attention to the doctrine of the incarnation. In Jesus, God takes on human flesh to dwell among his people and bring salvation and reconciliation to the Father. Through the narrative of Jesus' birth, Matthew unveils the divine plan of God to bridge the gap between heaven and earth, making redemption accessible to lowly people like us. And so with that, let's begin our exposition of Matthew 2. Matthew 2, 1 through 12 addresses the Magi and Gentile inclusion. Matthew 2 opens with the visit of the Magi, non-Jewish astrologers from the East seeking the newly born king of the Jews. This narrative carries profound theological implications signaling the inclusion of Gentiles in God's redemptive plan. The Gentile Magi recognizing and worshiping the Messiah, Jesus, foreshadows the universality of Jesus' mission to all nations. Matthew begins the passage by introducing the Magi, wise men from the East who follow a celestial sign, that is a star, which indicated the birth of a king. This event underscores the cosmic significance of Jesus' arrival, emphasizing that his birth transcends regional boundaries. The Magi's question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, reveals the recognition of Jesus' royal status and prompts an inquiry in Jerusalem. Herod's troubled response sparked concern of throughout Jerusalem, but why? So here's some background about Herod. Herod the Great, also known as Herod I, was a prominent and controversial figure in the history of the Roman Empire and the region of Judea during 1st century BC. He was born around 73 BC into an Idumean, that is an Edomite family, which had converted to Judaism. Idumea was situated south of Judea. And despite his non-Jewish ancestry, Herod became a supporter of the Hasmonean dynasty, the Jewish rulers of Judea. In 40 BC, the Roman Senate appointed Herod as the king of Judea, a position he sought with Roman support. His rule began during a period of political instability in the region. Herod faced significant challenges to his rule, including opposition from the Hasmoneans and internal dissent. Through military campaigns and political maneuvering, he managed to consolidate his power. Herod was known for his military prowess and successfully quelled various revolts. Herod was an ambitious builder and undertook extensive construction projects throughout his kingdom. He was responsible for constructing the port city of Caesarea, the Herodium, which was his stronghold and eventually his burial site, and what was regarded as one of his most notable achievements, he renovated and expanded the Jerusalem temple. So from 37 until his death in 4 BC, Herod ruled as king of the Jews, a reign marked by his total loyalty to Rome. Still, while Herod had strong ties with the Romans, his relationship with the Roman Empire, like most everyone else, was complex. Nevertheless, he skillfully navigated Roman politics and maintained good relations with influential figures, including Mark Antony and later Octavian, even after intense political situations had unfolded. In addition, Herod's personal life was complex and quite tragic. He had multiple wives and family disputes that often led to violence and bloodshed. The Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament recounts Herod's role in the story of the massacre of the innocents, where the ordered killing of male infants in Bethlehem was his attempt to eliminate the threat that posed by the rumored birth of the new king, that is Jesus. Herod died in 4 BC. After his kingdom was divided among his surviving sons, Archelaus received Judea. Herod Antipas became the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, and Philip became the Tetrarch of the territories to the north and the east. So interpretations of Herod's, Herod the Great's legacy are mixed as he was a complex and ambitious ruler. While his building projects left a lasting mark on the region, his ruthlessness and cruelty, especially when dealing with perceived threats to his rule, made it difficult, at least from a historical standpoint, to clarify what his legacy really is. Nevertheless, in the context of Matthew's narrative in chapter 2, that troubling feeling that Herod 
experience was connected to his paranoia about someone else taking his throne. So in turn, it would have been expected that he would take extreme measures such as those Matthew records in the narrative to protect his throne. So after consulting with religious authorities to learn the birthplace of the Messiah, Herod summoned the Magi to learn when the star appeared and to notify him about the child's location so that he could worship him. Matthew informs the reader that the birthplace of the Messiah had been prophesied, so see Micah 5.2, and had been literally fulfilled, thus reinforcing the divine nature of Jesus' birth and his life thereafter. Meanwhile, Herod, committed to preserving his reign, deceitfully convinced the Magi to share the newborn king's whereabouts, claiming that he wanted to worship him. When the Magi finally arrived at the child's location, emphasis child, not baby like our nativity scenes, they worshipped him, offered him gifts that signified his royal and divine status, and then they were warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. So, I want to talk about the gifts a little bit because I think it's an interesting topic. The gifts the Magi presented to Jesus are traditionally considered significant and symbolic. While the Bible doesn't explicitly state the symbolic meaning of each gift, Christian tradition and interpretation has associated particular significance with each gift. The three gifts are gold, which traditionally symbolizes kingship, royalty, and wealth. So by offering gold to Jesus, they're recognizing him as king. And its theological significance represents Jesus' kingship and his divine authority as the promised Messiah and king of kings, specifically the king of Jews. Frankincense traditionally is associated with incense uh, in, used in religious ceremony. Its aroma, when burned, symbolizes prayers rising to God. Theologically, it speaks to acknowledging Jesus' divine nature. It reflects his role as the high priest who intercedes on behalf of humanity, connecting earth to heaven. Myrrh, traditionally, is regarded as a fragrant resin that's used for embalming and preparation for bodies for burial. Theologically speaking, myrrh has been associated with suffering and death. So presenting myrrh to Jesus foreshadows his sacrificial death and burial, emphasizing the redemptive purpose of his life. So the gifts, therefore, are often interpreted in the context of Jesus' identity and mission. Gold recognizes Jesus as king of kings and symbolizes his royal status. Frankincense acknowledges Jesus' divine nature and his role as the high priest who brings humanity closer to God. And myrrh foreshadows Jesus' sacrificial death and emphasizes the redemptive purpose of his life. Further, Thomas Constable adds, It is unlikely that the Magi presented those gifts with their particular significance in mind. Rather, Constable explains, Matthew may have wanted his readers to understand the significance of each gift, hence mentioning them in the narrative. That said, each gift may hold deep theological significance and contribute to the broader narrative of Jesus' identity, mission, and the acknowledgement of his unique role in salvation history. Now, while these interpretations have become established in Christian tradition, it is important to remember that the Bible itself doesn't explicitly provide those symbolic meanings, so we shouldn't allow our interpretations and overall understanding to be informed by tradition, even if it's a good one. And instead, we should rely on the clear biblical text. I shared these things because I thought they were interesting, and I thought you would as well. So let's continue the exposition of Matthew 2. The juxtaposition of the Magi's reverence and Herod's deceitful intentions set the stage for the clash between earthly powers and the divine purpose and body in the infant Jesus. Moreover, Matthew's narrative underscores the universal recognition of Jesus as the promised king, drawing homage from representatives beyond the boundaries of Israel. Frank Stack says it this way, In this brief passage, Matthew's Christological interest is emphatic as he represents Jesus as the king of the Jews, the Christ, ruler, and one to whom homage or worship is due. The homage of the wise men from the east points further to Jesus as king of the whole world, not Israel alone. Although ignored by some and rejected by others, he is the joy of those who, like the wise men, find him. Now, speaking of Matthew 2, 13 through 18, escape to Egypt. The narrative takes a dramatic turn as the angelic message warns Joseph to flee to Egypt to escape Herod's deadly intent. 
Herod issued a decree for all male children two years and younger to be destroyed. Herod likely had the male children two years or younger slaughtered because he wasn't quite certain about the time that the star was seen by the Magi. And so it was likely that the child Jesus was approximately a couple years old when Herod issued this decree. And so to be certain, he issued this decree to ensure that all males in that region were taken out. Frank Stagg says this regarding Herod's character, that Herod would slaughter the infants of Bethlehem is in keeping with all facts otherwise known of this cruel man. He executed his favorite wife, the Maccabean princess Marion, his high priestly brother-in-law, several of his own sons and others near him. This Idumean usurper of the throne lived in fear of intrigue or assassination, and especially did he distrust and fear the Maccabean family into which he had married. The wise men inquiry about the one born king of the Jews would be enough to send the old king into a new fit of suspicion, fear, and jealousy. Especially as Greek scholars proclaim, and this is me talking again, because the words that Matthew used to describe born king of the Jews revealed his present status as the king, not a future occurrence. So Matthew was making it clear that Jesus wasn't born to eventually become king. He was born, he was already king when he was born. And that would have also added um, a further threat to Herod's throne because Herod usurped the throne, like Stagg said, but Jesus had a right to the throne. And Matthew had already emphasized that through his genealogy. In verse 17, Matthew references the prophet Jeremiah who spoke about Rachel weeping for her children in Jeremiah 31.15. The verse expresses the sorrow of Rachel, a matriarch in Israel, over the exile and loss of her descendants. Ramah, a village north of Jerusalem, is mentioned in connection with the Babylonian captivity where Israelite prisoners were gathered before deportation. Charles Q. explains that the association of Ramah with Bethlehem is explained by the proximity of Rachel's death near Ramah while she was on her way to Bethlehem as recounted in the book of Genesis. The sorrowful cry of Rachel lamenting that her children are no more in the context of Jeremiah's prophecy is interpreted to signify the despair of the Israelites in exile. However, Charles emphasizes that Matthew's readers would likely be familiar with the subsequent verses in Jeremiah, that is verses 16 and 17, which offer a message of hope and restoration. So Rachel is comforted with the assurance that her children will return from the enemy's land and there is hope for their future. Matthew then cites this passage to illustrate that Herod's massacre of the infants in Bethlehem reflects the ongoing exile and suffering of the Israelites due to the historical disobedience. Yet, in the midst of this darkness, Matthew has hope because the promised deliverer, Jesus, has come. Jesus then is portrayed as the one who will fulfill God's promise of restoration, echoing the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jesus will restore God's repentant people as God has promised through the prophet. The Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream to instruct him to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. This flight, guided by divine intervention yet again, aligns with the Old Testament narrative. By referencing Hosea 11.1 1 in the context of the family's flight to Egypt, Matthew highlights Jesus as the embodiment of Israel, the true son called out of Egypt. He was subjected to adversity, yet chosen for a unique purpose. He could identify with the plight of God's people, still his ultimate role is as their deliverer. Herod's subsequent massacre of infants in Bethlehem parallels the Exodus account when Pharaoh, in fear of the growing Hebrew population, ordered the massacre of all the Hebrew boys. However, like Jesus, a baby boy, Moses was protected from the massacre when his mother hid him away in a basket and placed him in the sea, thereby ensuring his safety amid the threat of harm. Moses, miraculously was saved from the perilous circumstances of his infancy, grew to become the renowned deliverer of the Israelites, or the Hebrew people. Guided by divine intervention, he led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, orchestrating their journey toward the Promised Land. His role as liberator, lawgiver, and intermediary between God and the people left an indelible mark on Jewish history. 
Now, in a striking parallel, Matthew portrays Jesus as the new Moses, the ultimate deliverer of the Jewish people. Like Moses, Jesus emerges as a central figure in the new Exodus narrative, but with a transcendent and redemptive mission. Matthew will provide several examples of Jesus' role as the new Moses, which we will explore at the appropriate time. But in this particular context, the parallels between the experiences of Moses and Jesus underscore the divine orchestration of salvation history. Matthew, in no uncertain terms, declares that Jesus is the ultimate and eternal deliverer. Matthew's account in the second chapter depicts the ruthless response of earthly powers to the perceived threat of the divine. Moreover, the tragic event serves as a backdrop to the overarching conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. So, after receiving news of Herod's death, Joseph, guided by a divine revelation in yet another dream, returns from Egypt. However, an unexpected twist occurs when he is warned not to go to Israel, prompting him to redirect his journey. He then chose Nazareth as the destination, and he, with his wife and her child, established their home there. Matthew then attributes this relocation to the fulfillment of prophecy, despite the absence of a specific prophecy that details an event like this. So the question that one would naturally ask is, why did Matthew make this claim that this was to fulfill prophecy? Now, one intriguing hypothesis put forth by several scholars is that Matthew, in attributing the fulfillment of prophecy, is referring collectively to the prophets. In other words, he may be suggesting that the entire prophetic tradition, rather than a specific prophet or passage, foretold such events. This interpretation aligns with Matthew's distinctive style of, he basically interpreted the Jesus experiences, Upon, it seems that he interpreted Jesus' experiences upon further reflection of the Old Testament. Furthermore, the choice of Nazareth could be a clever play on words based on its etymology. So scholars suggest that Matthew, in using Nazareth, may be making a linguistic connection with the Hebrew term neser, meaning branch. This term, notably used in passages like Isaiah 11.1, 1, symbolizes a king from David's line. Now, while the, the town's name doesn't derive from Nazar, Matthew's choice would be a deliberate wordplay emphasizing the royal lineage associated with Jesus. Matthew, says Quarles, sees this as an indication that Jesus is the branch promised by the prophets. Now, this fits closely with the description of Jesus as the son of David, emphasizing Matthew 1.1, and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So, in essence, Matthew's narrative intricately weaves together the events surrounding Jesus' early life with theological motifs and linguistic nuances. This claim of prophecy fulfillment, while not tied to a specific verse, underscores Matthew's broader theological message that Jesus, as the promised Messiah, fulfills the grand narrative of God's redemptive plan woven throughout the prophetic tradition. So Matthew 2, with its account of the Magi, Herod's opposition, the flight to Egypt, the infanticide, and the fulfillment motif contributes richly to the theological tapestry of the gospel. The inclusion of the Gentiles, the fulfillment of prophecies, the parallel with Israel's history, and the anticipation of Jesus' suffering collectively enhance our understanding of Jesus' identity and mission. This chapter sets the stage for the unfolding theological drama in the Gospel of Matthew, and it emphasizes the universal scope and divine purpose of Jesus' redemptive work. And we're going to find out exactly how Matthew articulates that as we continue our expositional study tomorrow, January 2nd, 2024. Amen. Chapters 3 and 4. Until then, study hard, praise God, pray, God bless.